0: Good morning. Today we start our new sermon series, in case you're wondering. We don't just do this to entertain you for a few hours on a Sunday morning, do we? No, the Bible is the Word of God, the very heart and reason of God. And unpacking the Bible brings us closer to God. Christmas is coming up soon, and I don't know if they'll do the nativity sketches this year, but what always gets me when we see the three wise men in them, they seem to have come to Jesus by following a star, a bit like a sat-nav. But do you know what? That's not actually what happened. Matthew 2 tells us they found Jesus because of what the prophets had written. Scripture leads us to Jesus. And so if you remember in October last year, we looked at Paul's letters to the Philippians, understanding how the gospel can bring joy even in the midst of terrible suffering and persecution. Jubilee, we rejoice because God is our strength and our song. In February this year, as we hit lockdown, we looked at encounters with Jesus where he welcomed people, often people who the culture of the day rejected or marginalized or persecuted. Jubilee as a church, you and me together, we welcome our second value because God is love. Then we had a break from our values and over the last four weeks we've had our gift day vision Sundays. I just want to say a Giganta, enorma, humongous thank you to all of you who prayed and generously gave this year. The final figure made me gulp and worship. We don't take your generosity lightly in our current situation. That requires big faith. It requires sacrifice. In many ways it's a thermometer of how hot you are for Jesus. Well done. Thank you. And so, this week, up until Christmas, maybe beyond, we are going to be looking at the book of Esther. And from it, we are going to be particularly digging for what we can learn about our third value. We inspire about leadership, about discipleship, about growing in Jesus You see, the book of Esther is a fascinating story of how a Jewish woman in the midst of terrible sin, cultural injustice, marginalisation, racial unrest, political oppression, historic confusion, and a seemingly divine silence brings about salvation for God's people. In many ways, it's about Esther taking the baton in the race before her and running it the best she can. Esther is an example, an inspiration of ordinary people, you and me, being called to purpose by an extraordinary God for such a time as this. And yes, as we read this book, we'll not see God mentioned at all. No miracles, no prophecies, no prayers. But throughout, as the story unfolds, we'll see his silhouette, his clear presence in the midst of his absence. That's what's so powerful about a silhouette, isn't it? So let's dig in. Esther chapter 1 verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. So... Who's Xerxes? Well, he reigned from 484 to 464 BC. He was the son of Darius, who was the king before him. Xerxes took over his father's empire right from India to Ethiopia. His kingdom crossed many nations. In fact, he reigned over what was then known as the world. Probably people referred referred to him as the king of kings. He was high and exalted. He had two palaces. Look, one palace shows that you're important, but two palaces is just showing off. He was the most powerful man on the earth. Are you getting the picture? And this story starts in his winter palace at Susa, or known to our Persian brothers and sisters as Shush, just about 400 kilometers southwest of Iran's capital, Tehran. For some of you listening in our church, this is close to home. This is your history. And so this Xerxes decides to hold a party. If you rule the world, particularly that part of the world where just to get two of those nations to get on would be a miracle in our day. If you wanted all 127 of these provinces to be nice to each other, you held parties. Big parties, Lavish parties, parties with lots of booze, lots of women, lots of bling, lots of gluttony, just lots and lots. That's how you showed your might and power and favour. And this party was just like that, but it went on for six months, non-stop, 24-7. Xerxes worshipped what the world has worshipped for centuries since, money, sex and power, idolatry. In the first Harry Potter book for the Philosopher's Stone, one night while Harry is exploring the spooky dark rooms in Hogwarts, the magical school of wizardry, he comes across an intriguing object called the Mirror of Erised. And when he looks into this mirror, to his amazement, he sees himself surrounded by his parents and relatives. He can't believe his eyes. Why? Because they're dead. In fact, He'd never seen his parents alive before. That's what he'd always longed for. And now they were there in the mirror, loving him, touching him, smiling at him. Wow. So the next day, in his excitement, he brings Ron Weasley, his best friend, to see his family in the mirror. But when Ron looks in the mirror, he sees something else. He doesn't see Harry's parents and relatives. Instead, he sees himself as head boy, captain of the sports team, holding the cup, standing apart from all of his brothers in importance. I look good, he thinks he's th- He thinks to himself. But why do they see different things in the mirror? Why not just their reflection? They don't get it. What's going on? And later on, Albus Dumbledore, the headmaster of Hogwarts, and their personal mentor explains. He tells them that the mirror of Erised isn't like any other mirror. Instead of showing you just physical reflections of what you look like, rather it shows you the deepest and most desperate desires of your heart. It's not actually that subtle. Erised, spelt backwards, reads desire. Jubilee, what would you see in the mirror of said? As a GP, I see working parents striving for promotion after promotion at the expense of their kids and their marriage and friendships. I see young men and women recklessly chasing the love or lust of their life at the expense of their health and psychological well-being. And when they lose that special person, when that relationship stops, they go into complete meltdown. I see married guys and girls chasing the passing pleasures of a sexual affair at the expense of all that they have built together over the years. I see mums so obsessively engrossed in the lives of their kids that they become paralysed with fear and worry when the slightest thing happens to them. I see guys putting everything into financial investments and when it all falls apart, they fall apart with it. Depression, anxiety, stress, heart attacks, loneliness, bitterness, marriage bust-ups, unforgiveness, overdoses. It's all out there every ten minutes. Welcome to the world's banquet. The big party, 24-7. Dumbledore says to Harry about the mirror, men have wasted away before it not knowing what they have seen is real or even possible but the bible emphatically declares an altogether different truth the african early church theologian augustine put it this put it like this if there is a god who created you then the deepest chambers of your soul simply cannot be filled up by anything less That's where the real party is Jubilee. The biggest mark of maturity and joy is the daily reorienting of all of our disordered worship of created things back to our creator god. It's a journey of repentance and faith, walking by the Spirit, loving the Lord God with all your strength and your heart and your mind and soul. It requires faith and discipline. Worship is central to discipleship and leadership. We cannot worship what we do not know. We cannot cherish what we do not have. Jubilee, how are you cultivating your worship life and battling idolatry? So the setting of this story is a sinful, idolatrous, indulgent, self-centred, power-addicted kingdom. So let's read on. The next five verses are much the same, actually. They describe in more detail the opulence and extravagance of the final banquet that Xerxes holds after a 180 days of drinking and feasting and sexing. So we'll skip those. But then in verse 10, if that wasn't enough, he had to show off his power even more. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, also known as smashed, drunk, three sheets to the wind, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles. For she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. So then, after consultation uh, with the law experts, they come to a decision. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree. That Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. And then all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household. So what do you think of that ladies? How men and women relate to each other is another important part of our discipleship. Each generation and each culture have tripped up, as we've just read. Following Jesus means understanding that the Bible's view of men and women is not just a concept. It's a story of relentless love. You see, we tend to think about sex and gender starting with culture or biology or the backdrop of human history. But that's not what Genesis, our origins, tells us. Genesis and later on in Ephesians we see God created male and female, humans and marriage as a living metaphor. God creates humanity in his image and in his likeness like a child resembling a parent. Like a deputy representing a king or even a temple statue representing a god. Fulfilling these roles depends on a man and woman relating to each other, equal but different, glorifying God in everything they do and are. Genesis tells us that this relational God who is love could never be truly imaged by just a solitary human. Genesis 2, it's not good for a man to be, able, to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. That word helper isn't a subordinate role, no way. It's the very same word Hebrew scriptures apply to God himself. Genesis tells us that woman is born of man's bone and flesh of his flesh. Different, yes, but fundamentally linked. There is an old story where a high-ranking company director and his wife are travelling and stop to get some petrol. The company director goes inside and when he comes out, he notices that his wife is talking to the service station attendant. He asks, why? It turns out that she knew the attendant and used to date him. Feeling smug, he says, I'll bet you're thinking you're glad you married me. A hotshot company director, not that service station attendant. She said, no, actually, I'm thinking if I had married him... He'd be a company director by now and you'd be a service station attendant. By the way, there's nothing wrong with service station attendants. You know that. But you get the point. It's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him, God says. However, what we see in this passage with Xerxes and a whole load of drunken men wanting Queen Vashti to parade herself in front of them is a result of what the Bible calls the fall. As Adam and Eve dishonour and disregard and disobey God's commands, essentially saying, Stuff you, I know better. God curses them. Now there is a conflict and power struggle. As a result, we see in the Old Testament appalling treatment of women by men and vice versa. We see murder and rape and exploitation But this is a diagnosis, not a prescription. The Bible does not endorse what it reports. But it does present a realistic picture of how human beings treat each other. And in particular, how we wield power. But the love story continues. Despite our defiance and hostility toward God and as a result to each other, his faithfulness and grace is unending. His longing for us is often described as a marriage. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, Isaiah declares. This marriage, however, turns out to be a very dysfunctional marriage on our part. But despite this, he is unrelentingly faithful and forgiving. And the climax of that faithfulness is Jesus himself. Rebecca McLaughlin writes, where God was husband to his wandering people in the Old Testament, Jesus, the ultimate image of the invisible God, steps into history as a groom. Jesus throughout his ministry travelled with a whole host of women. Jesus was born to a woman. God himself came into humanity through a woman. That's a massive statement in Jesus' day. Again and again, we see Jesus affirming, honoring, healing, and lifting up women as moral examples, both in life and parables. In a male dominated culture, his attention to women throughout his preaching is remarkable. The woman at the well, the woman who washes Jesus' feet, the woman caught in adultery, the way Jesus bigs up these women and shows compassion is inspiring and shocking. And so it continues into the church. This strange new first century faith flowing out of Judaism proved highly attractive to women. And they filled the church. The second century Greek philosopher Celsus snarked that Christians want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonourable and stupid, only slaves, women and little children. The 3rd century Christian apologist Minucius Felix records critics saying that Christianity attracted the dregs of the populace and credulous women with the inability natural to their sex. Jesus is why an aged woman named Apollina when she was taken by the Romans was beaten, had her jaws beaten, her teeth broken and was offered her freedom if she would renounce Christ instead chose to spring into the fire and be consumed. Jesus is why the mystic Julian of Norwich in 1393 wrote the earliest surviving example of a book written in the English language, The 16 Revelations of Divine Love, so profound that it is still studied to this day. Jesus is why women have travelled continents, spent decades learning a strange language so they could translate the gospel, planting churches, caring for the sick, educating the illiterate, and marching for the oppressed. Christianity Jubilee in the early church was countercultural. In fact, when I look at the world around me, the binding of the feet of women in China, the suicide by funeral pyre of widows in India, the practice of female genital mutilation, polygamy, pornography, sexual harassment and abuse, the lack of education, the lack of opportunity... Perhaps the whole world needs to meet Jesus once more at the well. Perhaps our world has still not caught up with him. There is an organisation in India called As Your Own who rescue orphaned girls, usually from sex trafficking, and raise them as their own, as a reference to the notion that in Christ all are to be one family. One story involved a girl called Rani, who lost her childhood when she was just 11 years old. She and a friend were drugged, abducted and transported 3,000 miles away from their home and the captors coerced her into sex trafficking through sexual torture en route. The combination of poverty, threats and beatings made it clear that for Rani there was no escape. Eventually Rani became pregnant and gave birth to a little daughter she named Prima. Soon, the captors wanted to use Prima as well. They offered money and then made threats to do the two to the daughter what they had done to her mother. The staff of Asron Az- heard about Prima's situation and intervened, although it took much time to gain Rani's trust. Eventually, they rescued Prima from this world at great risk to their own life. Rani herself today still remains a captive. In fact, she now works from the inside as a slave to help other daughters come to freedom. Such is a Christ-like sacrifice. Rani's statement when her daughter uh, was handed over to the staff was, I will not live for many more years. Please take up care of Prima when I am gone. This is Jesus' church, a church of hope, reality, rescue, grace and life. Why? Because Jesus is a better king. The real king of kings, seated in majesty and glory, high and exalted. Not just son of Darius, but the son of God, who came not to be served, but to serve, not to kill his enemies, with an army of millions, but a bit like Rani, to die for his enemies, saving billions. Not like Xerxes, who rose to power and died again. Rather, Jesus died to power and rose again eternally ruling and reigning worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing Jesus Jubilee is a better king let's praise him let's worship him and let's put him first and foremost in our lives let's be inspired by him by a God it was our father. Mm-hmm.